Well, we're still in our series entitled The King's Revolution, looking at Paul's letter to the Romans. And today we're in um, Romans chapter 3, um, verses 20 to 31. If Paul like, put the first slide up, please, Paul. It looks like. Okay. Okay, good. Um, I thought I'd look up the dictionary definition of what revolution is, and I, apart from it means something that turns round and round and round, it also means a forcible overflow of government uh, of, or social order in favour of a new one. Any fundamental change or reversal of conditions. And um, in his letter to the Romans, Paul tells us that God started a revolution when he sent his son Jesus into the world. He came as a man born into King David's royal family line and he was shown to be God by his mighty miracles and then when God powerfully raised him from the dead uh, by the Holy Spirit. And the old order was being replaced by a new one. Now there was a completely new way of relating to God. And that's why we have an Old and a New Testament in our Bibles. We have an, an Old Covenant and a New Covenant, an Old Agreement and a New Covenant, a New Agreement. And Jesus was bringing in this new agreement. And the announcement of this is called the Gospel. And Gospel means a proclamation of good news. It's an announcement of good news. It's not man's idea. But it's God's idea. And in the first chapter, right at the beginning, it's called the Gospel of God. This is what God has presented to man. It's what God has given to man. And Paul has been chosen to preach this Gospel um, to not only to Jews, but to Gentiles. And in fact, he had a special commission to preach this good news uh, to the Gentiles, that is, non-Jews. And so the gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for everyone. When I was thinking about how to kind of launch into this, um, I thought to myself, what are the biggest questions that we can ask? What are the big questions that we can ask that will affect us not only now, I mean there may be some immediate things that we're concerned about, but what only affects us now, but also into eternity. And here's the list I came up with. How can I be right with God? How, how can I be right with God? How can I know that I'm unconditionally accepted by God? How can I know that I can be declared righteous before him? How can I know peace uh, with him every moment of every day, as I sleep and when I wake? How can I know for certain that my faults and failings often referred to as sins, won't alienate me from God now and not condemn me when I face him one day in judgment? How can I know that my sins are forgiven? More than that, that they are actually dealt with and that the record has been wiped clean. How can I know that I am his beloved child forever? And we could go on, all right? We could go on with that. I don't know whether you would agree with me that they are very important, if not the most important questions that we could ask. So how do we answer them? 
Well, some would say, surely the thing to do is, if we want to be right with God, is that we study his laws and we do our best to live by them and we work hard to be a good person in society. That seems a reasonable thing to do. The problem is that we know that we can never keep his laws perfectly. If you've ever tried, you know that you cannot. And God's word says that if we've broken one of them, actually we've broken them all. It's as good as breaking them all. How would we ever know if we've done enough? Uh, how would we know if we've done enough? How would we know if we've at attained a righteousness that was acceptable to a holy God? And the answer is, left to ourselves, we can't know. And uh, we will see this morning that trying to keep God's law as a way of being right with God will always mean that we fall short. We will always miss the mark. So if God's law uh, is not a way to righteousness, it looks then as if we're doomed to failure. We stand condemned before God and we can do nothing about it. However, the gospel can be our rescuer from this terrible plight. So we'll read the passage. That's Romans 3 verse 20. For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin but now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe for there's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith this was to show God's right righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, by a law of faith. For we hold that the one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised, that's the Jews, by faith and the uncircumcised that's anyone who's not a Jew by the same faith do we then overthrow the law by this faith by no means on the contrary we uphold the law let's ask God to help us father this is this is a deep passage Lord there's some hard things to get our heads around this morning and um, and though Lord we do believe that you want us to live in the good of this passage so please help me, help the hearers. Lord, help us to, uh, to understand what it is you're communicating to us through this wonderful letter of Romans that Paul has written. Lord, we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. So at the beginning of this passage, Paul sums up all that he's been saying earlier in the chapters 1, 2 and, and part of chapter 3. That the religious... The religious people, the devout people, need the gospel as much as the idolaters 
uh, and the ungodly. Even though the religious could claim that they're not guilty of the sins of the ungodly, they were trusting themselves. They were trusting that they could be good enough by their religious observance, trusting their own righteousness, their superior way of life as they saw it, to be righteous in God's sight. So here is the verdict. I'm going to put scriptures up because it's quite, quite complicated, this section. So I hope, hopefully, um, it will help you to have the scriptures. So if we have the next slide, Paul, please. Oh, there we are. You got it. Great. So then, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. There is no exception. When, when it says no human being, it means no human being. You may think of some very godly people. Often Mother Teresa is uh, put up as a, an example of a very godly person. Um, Mother Teresa isn't excluded. Right? It's for, it's, it means everyone. We've all fallen short. Yeah. So the law, rather than helping us to be declared righteous before God, just tells us how we have failed. The law is holy, righteous and good. There's nothing wrong with the law. It is God's revelation to us of what he is like and what he requires. But it doesn't lift a finger to help us. And in actual fact, we can feel condemned by it as we read it. And this verdict, this condition of mankind, has been described as the black cloth uh, onto which Paul now lays out the diamond of the gospel. You know, if you're showing off jewellery, you may get a piece of uh, black velvet and put, put the, the jewels on just to show it off. And so we, we've now had the bad news, um, but which now shows off the good news of the gospel. So what can we do? Uh, we cannot save ourselves. We cannot stand before God righteous in our own strength. Next slide. Now verse 21, but now, we could say, but God, but now the righteousness of God or a righteousness from God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to us. This word but, it, it's, it's the whole passage hinges on this word. Here is the word that brings hope. It counters and reverses all that has gone before. We're in despair of ever being acceptable to God. Here is an announcement of God's revolution. Nothing like it has ever been heard before or since. An unheard divine righteousness, the righteousness of God, which means a spotlessly clean record, a spotlessly clean heart, if you like, okay? unheard of righteousness, not earned or deserved, but given. It is a gift and it, it, it has been part of God's plan all along, but only revealed now through the gospel. This was always God's plan, always in his counsel, that this is how he would operate, but it's now revealed through the gospel. So, do you see how different this is uh, from other religions and philosophies, where we have to develop a righteousness ourselves and offer it to God? That is, by our devotion and good works, we have to earn our place with God, uh, anxiously hoping that it will be accepted. But here, the Gospel says that God has developed 
a perfect righteousness and offers it to us and by it we are accepted. This is the uniqueness of the Christian gospel and it reverses what every other religion and worldview and philosophy and even the very human heart believes. In life, we believe we get what we deserve, don't we? You know, well, you got that, well, you deserve that, don't you? you know? And we have, if we want something, we have to work for it. And the gospel just, just cancels all that completely. The gospel shows um, that we are spiritually bankrupt, but God is willing to put righteousness to our account. You know, there's nothing in your account um, and you've got no means of putting something in, somebody else has to. And God puts righteousness to our account. We're out of the red and into the black. Paul now gives us four ways in which this righteousness comes to sinful people. And, and we would emphasise that. It's not to good people, it's to sinful people. This is how it comes. Next slide, please. First, it comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Faith that receives righteousness has one object and that is Jesus Christ. So it is the object of our belief rather than our belief uh, which is the crucial issue. And we, we really need to get our heads around that. Let me just give you an example. I may have tremendous faith that I can climb to the top of this building totally confident that if I jump off um, when I hit the ground I will not be hurt okay? now, I, uh, fantastic faith I believe this with all my heart but the object of my faith is, faith is false my faith is in the wrong place okay? on the other hand I may have just barely enough faith to board a transatlantic airliner on its way to New York and I nervously sit in my seat. But actually, it will deliver what is promised because it's not about my weak faith, it's about the ability of the plane and the pilot and the crew to get me there. So it's not, it's not my faith. So it's not faith that saves, and I'd even say it's not faith in God that saves. Um, I can say, um, I'll be alright, I've got faith in God. But what? In what have you got faith? What, what about that? And you could even say, I have faith in Jesus Christ. But it's faith in Jesus Christ and what, in what he has done um, on our behalf. Next slide. It cannot come through our own actions or efforts. That's absolute. It, it cannot come. There is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right? We know that. Uh, we are made in God's image to bring him glory and enjoy the glory of his praise in his presence. In our sin, we've lost this glory. We cannot live in the presence of God enjoying his approval. This is what this means. We've missed God's intention for us. God's intention for us as human beings. Next slide. It's given freely. It says, and are justified by his grace as a gift. It's as a gift. It's very important because it's possible to think of faith 
as a kind of work. Right? Calling up strong feelings about God, where, whereby the stronger our certainty and confidence, somehow God is more obliged to respond and save us. That would make faith a work. We're adding something to what God is having to do. No, faith is simply the attitude of coming to God with empty hands to receive a free gift. If you offer a child a gift, they put it out their hand. That's not a work. It's merely a way of receiving the gift that you are freely giving. This is crucial because if we come to think that our, our belief is the cause of our salvation, we stop looking at Jesus and we start looking at ourselves and we start looking at the condition of our faith. Right? And if on occasions it seems weak, we will worry and question our salvation. I'm feeling weak. I'm, I, my faith feels weak today. Am I really saved? You know, I was saved yesterday, but am I saved today? Because my faith feels a bit weak today. So we've turned faith into a work. Faith is only the instrument by which we receive salvation, not the cause of it. If we don't see this, we may think we have something to boast about. If I know I'm saved and faith is a work, I may think, well, I'm saved because my faith was pretty strong. I don't know about you guys, but my faith was strong and that's why I'm saved. Not at all. It's nothing to do with that. Nothing to do with that at all. Next, next slide, please. It is faith in Christ's work on the cross. So it is not faith in faith. Some people seem to have faith in faith, but it's not faith in faith. It's certainly not faith in ourselves. In this verse, Paul is even more specific about what we must have faith in. And we must be clear about it. And I've included part of the previous verse. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, some versions have sacrifice of atonement, through his blood to be received by faith. Now there's some really difficult technical words here, aren't there? Okay. Now we might use the word redemption or redeem sometimes. You might redeem a lottery ticket perhaps. I'm sure you all do that anyway. But, but you might do, but you might understand that term. But who uses the word propitiation? We don't do it. But it's here because it means something very specific. All right? It means something very specific. Let's, let's start with redemption. In the ancient society, those who were slow, uh, sold into slavery, who had no hope of freeing themselves, could be set free or redeemed if someone paid a ransom, paid for their freedom. And what Paul says here is that, that to us, who are slaves to sin and death and judgment, and that even came out in, in the passage that, that um, Barry was reading this morning, to us who can never pay the debt that we owe, to us redemption, freedom from debt, has come through Jesus Christ. So the price is paid for our redemption. How did God do this? By presenting him as a propitiation. Here is the way that the just God justifies sinners, how he makes the unrighteous righteous. So what does this word mean, propitiation? Well, because we've seen that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We are all under God's righteous judgment against sin. 
He is angry that sin has spoiled and polluted his creation, particularly the, the crowning um, part of his creation, human beings. And because of this, because he is just, he cannot overlook sin. Because if he did, he would not be a righteous judge and that would hardly be loving to the victims of sin. Part of our belief about God is that one day uh, God will put everything right. The Bible says that he will judge the world in righteousness. Where people think they've got away with things now will be brought to book. So God is a righteous judge and we would want him to be. We have a sense of judgment and justice, don't we? If we're badly treated, we feel we haven't got justice and we might um, really stand up for ourselves. And very often you see on the television people coming out of a courthouse very indignant because the judgment that's been given they think is not justice. All right, we haven't got justice. So I think it's fair to say um, that um, we would want God to be a just God wouldn't we? Now if he's just then that means that he must punish sin. We expect him to judge the world in righteousness. So how can God who loves us and wants to give us his righteousness and all that goes with that eternal life, life with Christ in eternity, how can he do that without compromising his justice? Well God does, does not set aside his justice he turns it upon himself. He turns it on himself. Propitiation is the turning aside of God's wrath from us onto Christ, onto himself. And um, Paul says to the Corinthian church, next slide, for our sake, he, that's God, made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, a modern paraphrase, paraphrase says, God took the sinless Christ and poured our sin into him and in exchange gave us his righteousness. So the wrath of God, which is rightly on us, is turned away and it's put on Christ. And in exchange we get his righteousness. So here is God's divine exchange Christ's righteousness for our sin I think that's a pretty good deal don't you we give up our sin and we get his righteousness amazing in this act of atonement or propitiation both the love of God towards us and his righteous judgment against sin are both satisfied in the cross love and justice meet and there's no compromise in order to forgive us God does not compromise anything. Right? He forgives us in this way. And how do we benefit from this amazing transaction, this divine exchange? We receive it by faith. We trust in the work of Christ on the cross on our behalf. And I think what, what this means is that we fully appreciate that when Jesus died on the cross, it was not just generally for the sins of the world, but it was for my sin and it was for your sin. So when I, when I read about the crucifixion uh, or when I sin, I just think, God, you died for that. You, you took the punishment for that sin. So let me summarise then these four ways of how righteousness comes. 
Firstly, it comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And you might say, well, is that all I have to do? Just to believe? Well, yes, you can't add anything to it. God doesn't ask you to add anything to that. But as I once explained before, this belief is somewhat specific. It means a transfer of trust. We stop trusting ourselves to be right with God, that we can somehow summon up our own righteousness to be right with him. And we trust what Jesus has done. We put our trust in him uh, as our saviour. It's a transfer of trust is what this belief is. Um, secondly, it cannot come through our own actions or efforts. Thirdly, it is given freely. It's a gift, right? a free gift, a gift of grace. Fourthly, it is faith in Christ's work on the cross. Next slide. Sins committed beforehand. In explaining how a just God can justify us, that is to make us right with him, by giving us the righteousness of Jesus, he answers a question that may have occurred to his readers, which is, what about the godly people in the Old Testament, like David, Abraham, Moses and so on, who lived long before Jesus? What is their standing before God? Can they receive this righteousness? And here's what he says, this is verse 25. This was to show his righteousness, for in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins, or left them unpunished. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he may be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. If God had really forgiven those sins committed by the Old Testament people, they would be gone. Nothing more would need to be done. But Paul is showing us here that in fact, God had not forgiven them so much as left them unpunished until he punished his son for them in the cross or at the cross. In other words, God is patient and his patience had deferred payment on those sins. God was accepting the Old Testament saints when they repented and trusted his mercy but he accepted them on the basis of the future work of Christ. So they are forgiven and justified on the same basis as we are on the finished work of Christ. So Christ's work on the cross stretches back in history and it stretches forward as well. So as far as those, those people were concerned, those I mentioned, David and Abraham and so on and Moses, um, their perspective was they were forgiven. There's no question in their minds that they were forgiven. Right? And we have King David in the Psalms expresses the joy of sins forgiven. You know, the joy of sins forgiven. But Paul shows us how God finally and justly dealt with their sins through the death of Christ, through the timeless death of Christ. Here's what um, Tim Keller in his book on Romans, um, uh, sums, how he sums this up. We're using this book to help us with these sermons. He says, The wonder of the cross is that in the very same stroke it satisfies both the love of God and the justice of God. At the very same moment it shows us that God is both the judge who cares enough about his world to set standards and hold us accountable to them and the justifier 
who has done everything necessary to forgive and restore us. He is a father worth having and he is a father that we can have. Amen. The cross is where gloriously and liberatingly we see that God is just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Just two more points uh, briefly before we come to an end. Next slide, verse, verse 27. Boasting is excluded. What then becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. If being justified by God is a free gift, if it is by grace, it means that we've done nothing to earn it or deserve it. Therefore, we have nothing to boast about. You understand that? We've got nothing to boast about. Um, when, uh, we get, we, when we come to uh, God's eternal kingdom, when we're there, um, we will all be there on the same basis. None will be able to say, well, I'm here because I did this or I did that or I was very good at this or that. No, we will be there on the same basis. It is that we trusted in the finished work of Christ. What Paul says in his uh, letter to the Ephesians, next slide. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. I always think it's a good verse to, to learn and remember, all right, because it kind of sums up the heart of the gospel. For it is by grace, that is God's undeserved favour, you know, with grace, undeserved favour, that you have been saved through faith. Faith is the way we received it, that's all. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. No one may boast, because it's a completely free gift. The last point raises the question, if the law cannot save us, should we not abandon it? Should I not tear out the Old Testament here, the law and the prophets? Um, if it can't save us, what, what's, what's the point of it? And um, what we find here in the next slide, Paul said, by no means. Do we overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. In verse 21, right at the beginning of this passage, we see one function of the law is to show us God's holy standards and how much we've fallen short of them. It says, through the law comes knowledge of sin. So that's one good reason to keep the law. Elsewhere, Paul says that the law leads us to Christ. He used the example, he said, the, school is like, uh, the, the law is like a schoolmaster that's put in, puts, put in charge of us until Christ comes. Uh, we've already seen that trying to keep the law does not save us because we always fall short. And so God has made a way for us to be justified in his sight apart from the law. But what Paul is saying here is that someone who believes the gospel, who has received Jesus as their Lord and Saviour, understands and loves the law more than someone who is seeking to be saved by it. In other words, it, the law is a wonderful way of learning how to live, what God's requirements are, God's holiness and justice and mercy and all those things. But it's not the thing that saves us. It's the way that we, we live. Even if we love the law, we know that we cannot keep it perfectly, but we're not condemned. 
If we don't know the, the salvation through Jesus, we are condemned by the law. But because we know salvation, because we know that we're made righteous through Jesus, we're not condemned by it. We know we're still justified. We know we're still accepted by God. But even more wonderful, we discover that Christ perfectly kept the law on our behalf. He not only died for our sins, but in his life, he perfectly kept the law on our behalf and his righteous law keeping is credited to us. So we have righteousness credited to us. We have law keeping. So when, when God looks at me, and, and this is no cause for boasting, as we've just said, God sees the righteousness of Christ and he also sees the law keeping of Christ. Even though I am not in myself righteous or that I, and not that I keep the law myself. And that is true of everyone uh, who belongs to Jesus. At the beginning I said what I thought were the biggest questions we will ever ask because the answer will affect us not only now but in eternity. I'm going to ask those questions again, slight, just worded slightly differently. And I want you in your own heart and mind to, 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 to say whether you can say yes to these questions because I believe they're the most important questions. Can I just ask you to close your eyes as I read them? This is for you to answer whether yes or no in your heart. Do I know that I am right with God? Do I know that I am unconditionally accepted by God? Do I know that I can be declared righteous before him? Do I know peace with him every moment of every day as I go to sleep and the moment I wake? Do I know for certain that my faults and failings that are referred to as sin in the Bible won't alienate me from God now and not condemn me when I face him on the day of judgment? Do I know that my sins are forgiven? More than that, that they are actually dealt with, that the record has been wiped clean. Do I know that I am his beloved child forever? If you can say yes to all those, hallelujah, because you've received the righteousness that is ours in Christ Jesus. If you're not sure... Please don't go home today without coming to see us and talk to us about it. Because you can be sure. It isn't up to you as such or your goodness or otherwise. It's by putting your trust and your faith in Jesus Christ. So do, do come and see us. We're going to sing a, um, a wonderful um, older hymn, but it just expresses this truth wonderfully before the throne of God above.